1988, the author Philip Yancey wrote one of, one of his many groundbreaking books, but this was a unique book like no other. Because the book came with a guarantee right on the front cover. A little label, sticky attachment that simply said, if you are not satisfied in any way, shape, or form with the contents of this book, please return it to the place where you bought it and you will be granted a full refund. Now, I don't know when the last time you ever read a book that had that kind of guarantee because I'll tell you, I got about a thousand that like to return. Probably pay off my house because I did that. But in this wonderful book, as a matter of fact, what do you think the book was about? Take a guess. That it would come with a guarantee. Now, I know that's probably an unfair question. Well, let me tell you what it wasn't about. It wasn't about Christian sexuality. Uh, it wasn't about how to get rich. Right? You think that those kind of books would make a splash and be a multi-bestseller. I'm playing with you. The book was entitled Disappointment with God. And Yancey tackled three questions that he was convinced, based upon his research and many, many conversations with individuals all over the world, that there were three questions buried in the heart of so many believers that they dare not ask aloud. And you'd understand why. Three questions were as follows. Is God unfair? Is God silent? Is God hidden? We have all faced disappointment at one point or another in our lives. And disappointment ultimately is this sadness, this sense of displeasure caused by the non-fulfillment of our hopes or our expectations. And I thought about, hey, let's, let's have some examples of disappointment, but you know what? I'm, I'm going to skip that because I think the truth is, is that we know what it is, and we've all gone through disappointments, and probably the hardest disappointments that we have ever faced in our lives are the very disappointments that come when we have looked to God to do something, when we've had a righteous a proper and appropriate expectation of him to come through in a situation. And by all appearances, it would appear, it would seem that he hasn't or he hasn't yet. Nevertheless, he hasn't. We're in a sermon series called Critical Questions. Pastor Shannon is taking us through a number of really profound, penetrating questions all out of the Gospel of John. So I'm not disturbing the waters there. I'm simply piggybacking this morning on this great sermon series with a, a story that's really been on my heart for some weeks now. Obviously, it's technically it's still the Easter season until next Thursday, which is Ascension Thursday when we celebrate the fact that Christ not only rose from the dead, but he ascended back to God the Father and is seated at the right hand of God the Father in his uh, royal majesty and sovereignty. Nevertheless, 
Um, it's an Easter story, and in this story, Jesus asks three questions, which ultimately really is one. But he has a way of restating the question in such a way as to bring out of the individuals whom he's questioning something, something very profound, something very deep, something that you and I share with them, something that I really believe that at some point in our lives, God says to us, I know you're disappointed with me. I know you believe I have let you down. And we have tiptoed around this issue for so long, and you've beat it around the bush in prayer. And today I want to talk to you about it. I'm hoping and praying that in this story, we'll have a chance to do that together. You all know the story very well. At least if you haven't, then, um, well, you heard it firsthand. Thank you, Brother Gary. I, poor Gary, I, I, I didn't tell him how long the reading was going to be. I just asked him in my pretty pleased pastoral demeanor, would you be willing to read scripture this Sunday? And he much obliged. And I just kind of left it. I said, thank you very much. <laughs> you didn't call back and say, oh, okay, uh, 35 verses? Really? <laughs> Where do we find ourselves in this story? Well, obviously, it's Easter Sunday. It's probably in the afternoon. And it is a weekend that followers of Jesus would much rather forget. It was a weekend of horror, heartbreak, brutality, loss, death, suffering, injustice, brokenness, shaming. You name it, they experienced it. And you wonder just how much a little group of people could endure as they had endured that Sunday, or that weekend rather. But somewhere along the way, these two individuals, after the ordeal of the weekend, essentially, and you would deduce this from the text, from the story, I just saying, you know what? Let's just go home. Enough of this. We've seen enough for a lifetime. Let's just go home. So they're walking along this very well-established road from Jerusalem to this town called Emmaus. Your Bible says it was seven miles. The truth is, is the way it's calculated is that it was seven miles return trip. So really it was three and a half miles. Now, let's just kind of dive right into the story. These individuals are walking along this road and they're, they're pretty engrossed in, in a very intense, disturbing conversation. They're going back and forth talking about the events of the weekend. And as they're kind of unloading on each other and sharing what they see, what they perceive, what they feel, the horrors that they've witnessed, out of nowhere, Jesus shows up. And he starts walking behind them, and then eventually he catches up with them, and he's walking alongside of them, kind of listening into the conversation. 
I love it because he invites himself into a very intense conversation. Do you have friends who have ever invited themselves into your intense conversations with others? I think there's a term for it called busybody. Would you please mind your business? This does not concern you. But Jesus just has a way of showing up. And he has inserted himself into the conversation. He's listening in. And we know that it's an intense conversation. Now, sadly, some translations don't bring out the full, um, just the words being used here. But it's literally a discussing and an arguing back and forth. It's a very emotional dialogue. But here's the, the incredible thing that happens. As they're going back and forth and, and talking and just letting it rip, so to speak, Jesus, or they, they are literally kept from recognizing that it is Jesus right there in their presence. Now, interestingly enough, in Luke's gospel, this phenomena happens two other places, chapter 9, chapter 18. I'm not going to look at them, but just, you can read them if you want. But somehow, Jesus says something to the disciples in these other verses, and they don't get it. But Luke adds, as a commentary, they didn't get it because it was kept from their understanding. It was almost as if God said, I'm just going to put a veil over their minds. They're not going to understand what he's saying because it's just not going to compute for them. But here, Jesus is walking along these two disciples, and they don't even realize it's the resurrected Christ. Now, please understand the irony of it. They are talking and unloading and unburdening their hearts about what they had just experienced of seeing Jesus brutalized on the cross, buried, and he's standing right beside them, and they don't even recognize who he is. Quite an irony. Jesus invites himself into their conversation incognito, kind of keeping his true identity concealed, while at the same time keeping them from recognizing him. And there's really a purpose to what he's trying to do here. I think what just astonishes me, just even at this point in the story, is just how far he is willing to go to reach out to those who have completely just have walked away because of what they experienced. In their grief, in their doubt, in their brokenness, Jesus is right there, even though they don't see him. He's kept or kept, literally kept from seeing him. Secondly, Jesus inquires about the topic of this intense conversation. Now, he says something kind of odd. It's, it's normally when two people are talking and you see them kind of really getting into it, like you, you know, you might say, "Hey, everything okay? Um, you guys all right? What are you talking about?" But literally, what Jesus is saying is. What are these words that you are taking and throwing at each other back and forth, like a, like a tennis match, right? Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he no sooner says that, one of them, who Scripture identifies as Cleopas, 
it comes to a grinding halt, a standstill, literally. One, um, one commentator on, on Scripture says he, he was stopped dead in his tracks. Totally defeated, discouraged, somber, sullen, gloomy, morose. He looks at Jesus and he says, like, are you, are you the only person, like, You'll have to catch the emotional impact of this. Are you the only person on the face of the earth who hasn't picked up on what's happened this weekend? It would be the equivalent of you and I standing in downtown Manhattan three days after 9-11, looking at people in an in intense conversation. They're, they're in shock and their grief. And we kind of walk up to them and go, like, what's all the fuss about? Like they would literally turn around and look at you as if, did somebody hit you in the head with a bat? Like, are you, have you completely buried your head in the sand? Or like our millennials would say, duh. <laughs> They're shocked and stunned at his ignorance. And Jesus literally acts like he hasn't a clue about what has gone on in the past weekend to what's, what's happened. Now, he's not being cruel because everything we know about Jesus would mitigate against the opposite. He's not being heartless. He's, he's not, for me, for putting it this way, he's not playing stupid. But he's acting like he just really doesn't know what's going on. The point is that he's trying to draw out of them what they're arguing and fighting and moaning and complaining about. He's just skilled. He knows what he's doing. Then he proceeds with the second question. Well, what things? So Cleopas looks at him and says, like, you, don't, don't you understand what's happened? The, the things that have happened this weekend? Jesus, well, what things? And then this traveler, just like, it's like he emotionally throws up. He dumps it all on him. He says, what things? He says, Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet, the, the one who our religious leaders have had arrested and put on trial and had executed by the Romans. A, a person who was powerful in word and deed. Um, and they go on and on and they give, they give all these facts. Well, you know, we, we have friends who said that they went to visit the tomb and he's not there. The stone's been, you know, they're, 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 they're joining all the dots. And somehow his body's missing and, and it's the third day and it's just, there's just so much that's happened and we don't know what to do with this. But see, here's the punchline and it's buried in his big pouring out of his heart. It's just simply this. We had hoped or we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel you see it it never ceases to amaze me in my own life when I sit down with individuals who are in crises particularly when it's a crisis of faith a crisis of belief you put your cards on the table you, you have an honest conversation 
and then it comes out. I was expecting this. I had hoped that God would, and you can just fill in the blank, and it didn't happen. These Jews, who knows the kind of stories they heard over the past 30 years of living in Jerusalem, of a young virgin giving birth to a baby miraculously, of this young child growing up and eventually making his way to Jerusalem at age 12 and confounding the, the, you know, the religious establishment, the, the scholars of his day. This person who for the past three years was opening up blinded eyes, raising the dead, teaching and preaching, driving out demons, doing the most incredible things, multiplying bread for the starving. The story circulated. And once they joined all the dots and added all the evidence and put it all together, they figured, you know what? All these signs point to this one thing. This person must be the Messiah. He must be the chosen one, the promised one of God, who's going to come and liberate us from the Romans and lead us out of bondage so we can be a people again. We can be our own country and in one respect, their hopes were not wrong. But their hopes were so short-sighted. Because yes, he did come originally for his people to fulfill the promises that were being made right from the Old Testament times, Abraham, David, until now. But it was going to be even more than they could have ever expected. So much more. Cleopas has gotten all this stuff off his chest, out into the open. And it's almost like you almost have this sense of, now that he's gotten it all out, hopefully this ignoramus, this third person, will kind of go, oh, right, okay, yeah, I get it. But that's not what happens. All of a sudden, this third person Jesus incognito, Jesus undisclosed to these disciples, begins to reinterpret the facts that were shared in this conversation. Now, can you imagine you pouring your heart out to somebody and sharing the depths of your soul, your grief, your heartache, your misconceptions, your disappointments, and the first thing that comes out of this person's mouth as they look at you is, Oh, you poor fool. How slow of heart are you to believe everything that is said in the Word of God? That's not in the Compassion 101 manual, by the way. There's other ways of kind of going about empathizing with somebody when they share their heart with you. But this is exactly what Jesus does. As a matter of fact, it's depending on what translation of the Bible you're reading, it might say, oh, how, or just how foolish you are. But some versions actually say, oh, and that's literally the literal translation. It's the Greek word, oh. <laughs> it's just one letter, but it's, it's viewed as a word in and of itself. And it's only spoken to express great emotion. Kind of like, ah! Oh! 
right? That, that's our version of O oh, in, in, in Hebrew. <laughs> A more literal translation would be this. Oh, you, oh, you unintelligent, slow to believe, slow hearted, sluggish people. Now, you're saying, Mark, that's no matter how you try to translate that, it still sounds pretty offensive. He wasn't being offensive. It's just like he, he was mustering up compassion and not criticism. It's kind of like, oh, you guys, you just don't get it. You just don't get it, do you? And of course, you know what he does. He takes them on what I would call a tour de force of the Old Testament, going back to Moses, prophets, the Psalms, and he unpacks, literally, all the verses that talk about Messiah's suffering that would precede his glory. Now, how would you like to have been there for that Bible study? No PowerPoint slides, right? No, no, no handouts, i.e. Mark. Uh, no highlighting, no verses, no, I mean, you, you know what I'm trying to say. He just goes from verse after verse after verse. You see what David said here? Well, look what he says here. Messiah would suffer before he is glorified. And he goes through all of this, not out of anger, not of a desire to make Cleopas look bad or embarrass him, but just to say, you see the way you looked at God, at the way he does things, and your interpretation of the scriptures? Now let me share my side of the story. The same events being looked at at two different, completely opposing perspectives. One was nothing but grief and tragedy. The other one was ultimately victory. So as the story goes, they're walking along, they're getting closer to their destination, and what does Jesus do? Well, he acts as if he was just going to continue walking. You know, like, in other words, he said his peace. He's letting the scriptures kind of rest with them to, for them to kind of work it through, and he keeps on walking. I love the way Luke says it. It's almost as if he was going to, like he was acting just to keep on going and... and he wasn't pretending. He, he would have kept on going had they not begged him to stop. But I, I love what he does. He allows himself to be pulled back in. And of course, that's what they do. They, 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 they practically arm wrestle him, right? Tackle him down to the ground. You can't leave. It's too late in the day. And, and if you understand Eastern customs, it's like it would be rude for two individuals walking with someone to arrive near their destination and not say, hey, come on in for a meal. Rest a while. As a matter of fact, they're saying, listen, you can have a sleepover. <laughs> so they're inviting Jesus for a sleepover. So naturally, no good sleepover doesn't begin without a meal. And they have a meal, and Jesus takes the bread, he prays, he breaks it, he distributes it, and then all of a sudden, the lights come on. 
and the stranger who hasn't changed, he hasn't shape-shifted, right? This is no metamorphosis. He's still the same Jesus that was walking on the road with them. But now, right before their eyes, they see the resurrected Christ. And as soon as they see him, he disappears from their sight. And they look at each other, and they go, Tim. I mean, you remember what he was saying to us when we were walking on the road? Didn't our hearts feel like they were on fire? Like there was something coming alive in us as he was kind of opening up the scriptures? It's very, very interesting that in this very chapter, Luke uses this word three times. Their eyes were opened, scriptures were opened to them, and later on when they eventually get back to Jerusalem, and Jesus kind of unpacks it one more time for all the disciples, it says he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. This was an opening time, divinely orchestrated by God. So, I find this so intriguing that the one who's following them, listening in on the conversation, getting an earful, now is the one who's leading the conversation. The one who was inquiring, asking questions, is now the one who illuminates their understanding, turns the lights on. And the one who, by divine reasons, chose to be incognito, all of a sudden, his identity is changed, or is revealed, and they realize who it is. He no sooner disappears, their hearts are on fire, and what do they do? They go back home. They go back, back home, full circle. They go back to where they came from. The place that a few hours earlier represented death and defeat and discouragement and disappointment and everything that could go wrong and crushed dreams and shattered hopes, all of a sudden now has a new look to it. They go full circle. And I mean, who knows at what point it, it, it was in the day, but it was a three and a half mile trip back to Jerusalem. And if you read the rest of the story, they meet up with the disciples. They tell them, hey, listen, we, 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 met, with, we met with Jesus, the resurrected Lord. And they no sooner say that, and he appears once again in their midst, but this time with all the disciples around. And wow. These disappointed followers now with eyes opened by the very person and presence of Jesus and hearts on fire by the truth are back on their feet, ready to go back to the place they left. They leave isolation, go back into community. And really, their hearts are on fire. They have a new sense of purpose and vision and mission for their lives. So what on earth does this all mean for us today? It's a nice story. It's a beautiful story. But what's the point? What can you and I learn from this story and take home that'll change your lives? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go deep with you in some of these things. It might be a little uncomfortable, but I'm trusting that you'll, you'll hear what I say in the larger context of things here. 
Jesus, our great shepherd, always pursues us. He's always accompanying us. He's always with us, even if we are not able to see or sense him with us. Right? You and I can be the equivalent of these two disciples walking away in absolute disappointment and dejection and discouragement and not even realize that he is right there with us. I can't tell you the number of times that has happened to myself and how many times I have heard people talk about they felt like they were in the loneliest season of their life where it was all blackness. They couldn't, they wouldn't know. Forget about sensing God's presence. They were almost a breath away of saying, I don't even know if God exists. Only to have in some point something happen to realize that he had been there all along. Now, this brings up a very, very uncomfortable truth for a lot of us. And I don't know how else to say it other than just to say it, and then we'll, we'll leave it there and I'll let it rest with you. There are seasons in our lives as followers of Christ where God will withdraw his immediate sense of his presence. In other words, it's, gotten, it's not an act of punishment. It's not like he's tormenting us. He's doing something mean to us. It's almost like a spiritual probation time for a day, for a week, for a month, however long it lasts. Now, there's an Old Testament story where this has happened before. Uh, I'll just talk about it. Uh, we're not going to go and, and read it, but there's a point in Hezekiah, one of the great kings of Israel, who was a, a God lover, a faithful, faithful leader. Um, he was on death's door, and God said, listen, I'll give you life. This is what you got to do. The prophet Isaiah goes to him, tells him what he needs to do. He gets his house in order. He begs for his life. His life is restored to him, and on and on, on. And then it goes on where he goes through this incredible season of prosperity, and he's amassing treasures and wealth and all this stuff. Like he's living a good life as a king because he's a godly king. But then it says, the Lord left him to test his heart. The Lord left Hezekiah to test him, not to torment him, not to punish him, but in, in essence, to put his heart on probation to see what was inside his heart. Hezekiah, will you still love me if you don't sense my presence? Will you still honor and bless me if you have no clue that it has all come from my hand? If when you wake up, and the scribes and, and the priests are reading the, the, the words out of the law, and it's bouncing off your heart like a tennis ball, will you still be true to me? And it's very interesting that in that story, in the time of testing, what does he do? Envoys from Babylon come, they check him out, he reveals all his treasures as if to say, look what I got, look what I got. Almost as if he had completely lost sight, it was the fact that it was God who had given all of this to him. And if you follow the rest of the story, there's one or two more kings after him before the Babylonians come in and that's it, game over. My point is this, is that we never see what is truly in our hearts in terms of our love for God, our commitment to God, our devotion to God, 
our faithfulness to God, we never see it more for what it is than when we are in a season where it appears that he is not there. There are seasons where it, it, and again, all I can say is that it would appear that God is not actively present in our lives. It doesn't seem like, in, in, in our Pentecostal words, like, he's working in my life, he's moving, I could sense him. <laughs> you know, like, none of that's happening. If anything, we're not practicing the presence of God, we're practicing the absence of God. He's not there. It would appear that way. He's always there, right? We know better. He's always there. Like these two guys. He's right there. But in those seasons, we get to see what's in our heart. And I am amazed time and time again how easy it is for me to fall apart to start complaining to start becoming disgruntled with God to be disappointed and angry and frustrated like God where are you what why have you left me what have I done what evil you know uh, 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 what should I do <laughs> should I sell my bass guitars should I give away my books Please, let me know. And it's, 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 it's ridiculous, right? It's like he's just saying, listen, walk faithfully before me. Do in the darkness what you did in the light. Right? Do in the darkness, in the unseen. Do in the seasons where you can't feel his presence or sense him or see him. Do then what you did in the season when it seemed like you were having breakfast with them every morning. That's what we got to do. That's the probation period. Why? Well, I'm only looking at it from one little tiny angle. It develops us. It develops character. It develops faithfulness and fidelity and allegiance to God. Because let me tell you something. If we can't stand true for him in these little mini seasons of probation, there may come a time when it really hits the fan. And what do we have formed inside of us to last then? Something you may want to think about. Secondly, God seeks our honesty in all things and at all times. Jesus probing these two disciples with these three questions, right? Um, why are you arguing back and forth? What things are you talking about? Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things before he enters his glory? You take those three questions and put them all together, it's essentially one thing. It's like, why are you disappointed with the way God does things? Why are you disappointed? Because it doesn't meet your criteria, your expectations of him? your hopes and dreams and visions of the way God ought to be doing things? Why? The point is, is that Jesus succeeded in getting the truth out of them. Because finally when Cleopas kind of lost it and just threw up on Jesus emotionally, he just he, he, he burdens his soul with all these things. And, and I can almost see Jesus smiling inside. It's like, finally, Finally, you're telling me the truth. 
Sometimes I'm convinced that we as believers are scared to tell God the truth. We would much prefer to say the things to him that we think he wants to hear. You know, like we want to be religious and sound very uh, praisey and worshipy and, and in prayer. And we're, we're, we're going through seasons of difficulty and pain, but we, we don't want to talk about that. Right? We just kind of like, oh, God, you're so faithful and good. I hate my life. But... And, I remember, I wanted to share the story. It's, it's a little fun. I'll, I'll insert a little bit of humor, right? We're actually doing a very good for time. I was working for a construction company once in between semesters of Bible college, and we were mounting trusses before the roof was installed. So I was 45 feet over the ground, and I was working with a Frenchman. I am a French-Irishman. He was a Frenchman. No, please, restrain yourselves. So... I'm, he, of course he had seniority over me so he could tell me what to do. And I'd be at 45 feet in the air, standing literally on big squares like that because you would have an, a drop of 45 feet to your death. I'm standing like this holding up a truss in place. And he says, no, there, there, more, more, okay, yeah, right there, hold your hand there. Okay, and he's leaning over with his hammer and his nail. So you know where this is going, right? Boom! Right on my finger on the wood. I'm 45 feet in the air. My arm just grabs the other piece of wood. My whole body immediately starts breaking out in sweat. I'm in like... It's like somebody had dropped me in a, in a kettle of boiling water. Now, what was my reaction in that moment of pain? Oh, appendage of mine. Thou appearest to be genetically modified and in great distress. I must return to the ground where I can inspect thee more closely and figure out why art thou in distress? No. I screamed like I, I was, I let out this horrifying scream. Everybody on the job site heard me. And they're just seeing me hanging on, dangling legs. And, and, and I, just for the record, just so that you know, I didn't swear. I, I was still in Bible college. I may have had little allowance just to call him certain names, but I didn't. What am I trying to say? God is not shocked by our honesty. Well, let me tell you something. Our dishonesty with him is nauseating. There are times you have to say, ouch. There's times you got to scream. There's times you got to say, this is not fair. God is not intimidated by that. You read the confessions of Jeremiah, one of his prophets, who uh, God had called into ministry. And this guy was a teenager when he was called. He was a some theologians estimate that he was probably 12, between 12 and 15, when he was called to be a prophet to Israel in Babylonian captivity. And he underwent nothing but persecution, beatings. He was chased by the people, the prophets, the priests, the politicians. He was imprisoned. I mean, everything happened. And then one day, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's captured in about 10 chapters of Jeremiah from chapter 11 all the way to 20, 
where he has these unloading parties with God. And in one place, he is so graphic that the English translators of the Bible could not translate exactly what, they, what he said. All they could do is translate words in the family of what he said. There's one point where Jeremiah essentially, this is exactly what he says from the Hebrew. I feel like a young girl who has been seduced and raped. You seduced me and you raped me. That's what he says about his calling. You seduced me into ministry and once you got me in, you raped me. He takes the language right out of Leviticus, the Leviticus laws against rape and, and all that stuff. And that's what he says to God. And you know what? Read the rest of the chapter. God doesn't get upset with him because the Lord knew that this was in Jeremiah's heart. Now, I'm not talking about crossing the line and being disrespectful and swearing. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about authenticity and transparency with God, not, not disrespect. Okay, there's, there's a difference. Okay, we got to go. I got to land this plane. Disappointment arises with God, or disappointment with God arises when our hopes and expectations of what he should do clashes with what he does or doesn't do. Think about it. Our disappointment with him arises when our hopes and expectations of what he should do clashes with what he does or doesn't do. And the truth is, is that we just never have the whole story. The next point is simply this, is that we must allow God to bring clarity to any disappointing situation by letting him share his side of the story. And I will submit this to you for your consideration prayerfully. I think sometimes, I think, as a matter of fact, I'm more on, on, on the side of convince that the reason why we don't hear the truth about a particular situation from God is simply for the reason that Jack Nicholson gave to Tom Cruise when he was in that trial in A Few Good Men. You can't handle the truth. Now, that's a terrible movie, and you know, that's not what I want to talk about, but the point is, is that I think there are times where God, I think in his mercy, shields us from the whole truth of the situation because I don't think we would receive it. I don't think we would receive it. We'd go, seriously? That's why this is happening? Or or, uh, that's why I went through this for this purpose? Really? And that's probably what God does. He kind of probably giggles. Yeah, that's the reason why. I know that's, I, I know, I know we got a problem. I think I'm God. And you think you're God. But one of us is God and one of us is not. One of God's gifts to us when we are, is when we are permitted to see him in our midst or see him in the midst of our disappointments and difficulties. In the middle of these disciples' brokenness and discouragement and disappointment, Jesus grants them a glimpse of who he is and disappears. It's so, it's so quick, but it's just enough to confirm that he is indeed the risen Christ, the Messiah, that he has literally proven the scriptures right. 
And there are times when God will do that. There'll be times where you're in the middle of something and you don't necessarily get taken out of it, but you get to see God in it. You understand the difference? You don't get taken out of it, but you get to see God with you in it. And that makes all the difference depending on what you're going through. My little son, he's somewhere, good-looking guy. They're all good-looking guys. But, um, he had a fibril seizure, right, Liam? When he was just a little guy. And my wife was panicking because his fever went through, like, uh, through the roof. And my wife didn't know what to do, so my sister-in-law grabbed him and ran outside the front door. He was burning up with heat. He was, he was going blue. His eyes were going in the back of his head. And, and she didn't know what to do, but she was panicking. At least she felt like it's better than just sitting on a couch and doing nothing. But, but we, they, they were in shock, right? And out of the blue, this car pulls up and stops and takes Liam and puts him on the wet grass. It was probably in October or something, just to bring his temperature down. So we brought him into the hospital. We got checked out. We, he's here with us. He's tall, handsome, so he survived. But I remember that night, um, I had to sleep with him on the floor in his, in his bed, in his room. And he would wake up literally every two minutes, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. I go, I'm here, son. I'm here. I'm here. This went on about maybe 30 times. Um, I didn't sleep good that night, Liam, but that's okay. I was there. Still am. The point is, is that there are seasons where God allows us to see him. It doesn't take us out of the season. It doesn't remove the season. It just reinforces the fact that as he traveled with those two disciples, so he travels with us. Finally, God's word ignites our hearts and inspires us back or to return back into action and community. And you know how the story ends. So when we're in a season of disappointment, when we're in a season of struggle and grief, our natural tendency is to separate ourselves, to be isolated, to, to try to figure it out on our own and to distance ourselves from people that care and not want to be with them. And I guess that's a human condition, but you know you're on the right track when something inside of you says, listen, I got to get back to being with my brothers and sisters, even if, even if, I, feel like, even if I feel like hell. I got to be back in and be with them because better to be with them and potentially experience encouragement than to be alone and to face the inevitable. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. I'm not going to prolong this. I really only have two questions today. One question, as a way of just kind of bringing this message to an end, is to any of us here today who have really not... You've not crossed the line of faith, metaphorically speaking, in terms of your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You may feel like you've been abandoned. You may feel like God's never been there. He's never been close. He's always been distant. I just want to remind you today, and I know that I know 
that I know. Now trust me. 21 years as a broken person playing in a heavy metal band, drinking, drugs, angry, suicidal, violent, a thief, bitter. I have as many examples of God being with me when I wasn't a Christ follower, of intervening in my life and saving me from myself than I do now that I am a follower of Christ. For whatever it is worth to you, sir, ma'am, young person, older person, you have never been alone. You may have felt like you were alone. You might have ample evidence to say that God abandoned me, but he never has. You may not have ever recognized his presence, but he has always been there. I just want to say to you today, if you're willing to open up your heart to him and just say, Lord, open up my eyes that I can see. Open up the scriptures so I can see. Open up my mind so I can understand. Just open me up so I can see, so I can come home. Today can be your, your opportunity to come home. Second, really, is to the believers. And I'm going to ask you to stand. I, I think there's no other way of doing this. I want you to look at the question on, on the screen. Prayerfully, I just want you to, in your own way, well, obviously, if it's appropriate, but I want you to simply say to God, I felt disappointed with, with you, Lord, because I had hoped that you would and fill in the blank, but you haven't, or you haven't yet. Now that's taking it even more personal than it is here. And maybe all you can do is you can't even bring yourself to say it to the Lord. Maybe you have to sit down with somebody and say, I felt disappointed with God because I had hoped that he would, but he hasn't. And the, the unwritten word is he hasn't yet, or maybe he won't, I don't know, but he hasn't. It's in that place of authenticity, transparency, and truthfulness that you can experience and encounter God in a life-changing way. So let that be your question today. As Tyler leads us in the song, I'm going to be down here in the front. I'm going to invite the prayer team. If you want to come up for prayer, please, by all means, come. But really, more importantly than you just coming up for prayer, is just for you to ask, ask this question or, or, or to state this statement to the Lord. Okay? Father, as this service comes to a close today, I know that um, this might be a, a real step of courage for some of us to maybe for the first time to either face the possibility or to admit that we have allowed ourselves to become disappointed or disenchanted with you. 
the reassurance today is that we know that you are good that you are the same yesterday today and forever and yes there are times where we don't understand what you're doing it doesn't make sense it doesn't add up it doesn't fit the criteria of the way things ought to turn out but God you alone have the ability to even in tragedy to bring about triumph and so while the world thought it was getting rid of a religious imposter you are transforming the world through the death the burial the resurrection of your son but Lord for some of us who find ourselves uh, not in between Friday and Sunday but on Sunday still grieving still wondering when when is resurrection going to come to my situation my my situation that appears to be dead and I'm disappointed and angry and frustrated when's resurrection going to come and life is going to come out of what appears to be death Lord those are questions we all have for for one reason or another and I just pray that you would grant us grace to trust you and that you would allow us a safe place to to truly share our hearts with you and not to say the things that we think you want to hear but to speak honestly and and in that place of honesty experience healing and an absolute change of perspective so that at least we can return back to the place where we left and follow you once again with the assurance that you are good you do all things well and you work out all things for the good to those who love you so lead us on that pathway Lord lead us back from Emmaus not to Emmaus but back from Emmaus we pray this in Jesus name